chapter 6 of Nehemiah is where we are today. We're going to finish chapter 6 and start in chapter 7. Jason is going to take it away next Sunday in chapter 7. But today we get Nehemiah 6. We're going to start in verse 15 in just a moment. Uh, we've been looking through, working through this book. I think I'm at a, at a distinct advantage, dads, because my kids hear me read this on Sunday mornings, right? Does that count still? doesn't count. Yeah, I mean, they do. Uh, but we've been working through the book of Nehemiah, and in chapter 6, so far, we've really hammered home on the idea of perseverance, or as we were in he- uh, Hebrews 10 this morning, endurance. Parents, we need this desperately in raising kids. Christian, you need endurance to walk with the Lord faithfully all the days of your life. We need it. We have to have it. And by God's grace, we will through his spirit. Nehemiah realizes in chapter 6 that the work he is doing is great. And to those who were trying to distract him and to, to coerce him into really a dangerous situation, he said, why should I leave the great work that I'm doing to come down to you? He knew that what God had called him to was great. So perseverance is necessary because what God was doing in Jerusalem was about his glory, was important. Nehemiah knew it was great for that reason. Another reason for endurance is because the battle is ongoing. Guys, the enemy doesn't take a vacation. The enemy doesn't let up. Sin does not just take a day off. It doesn't give up, and so neither can we. And this point is driven home at the end of chapter 6. So I want to read chapter 6, starting in verse 15, and we'll go through the first four verses of chapter 7. So follow along. I'm reading from the ESV. We'll read and then we'll pray together. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son Jehoanan had taken the daughter of Meshalem, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobias sent letters to make me afraid. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now, when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we always give you thanks for your word. But especially today as we consider the impact on the generations that follow, we're grateful that even as parents, even as grown-ups, we miss the mark sometimes. 
more than we probably like to admit. And yet your word never does. It never fails. And so even when we blow it, we can still have confidence in directing our children and the children of this church and of our community back to your word because it never fails. And we recognize that in our text today. We're grateful for this historical record, but more so, Lord, the spiritual effect that this would have on the nation for generations to come. And so we're grateful for the victory. We're grateful for uh, the recollection of this in the book of Nehemiah. And we're grateful for the impact it has on us in 2023 and on our kids that go forward. And so enlighten us, open our ears and hearts. We want to have ears to hear what you have to say to us today. So give them to us by your grace. We pray it in your name. Amen. So look at uh, verse 15. Just kind of nonchalantly... Nehemiah records this incredible victory, right? The wall is finished. Yeah. The wall's finished. How long did it take? Kids, kids, somebody, one of you tell me, you can look at the text, that's not cheating. How many days did it take? Raise your hand. 52 days they finished it. 52 days. I don't know if there's significance with 52 and 52 Sundays in a year. Not sure if that is the case, but they started the job, we're going to say August, and they finished around October, 52 days of pretty constant work. And a question kind of jumped out at me as I was reading this and studying this this week. It took Nehemiah and the people of Israel, people of Jerusalem, 52 days to rebuild the walls. How long had the walls been in disrepair before this? A hundred years. Why did it take... Over a hundred, why did it not ever happen in a hundred years prior? It only took Nehemiah and the people of God 52 days here. Now I'm not suggesting this was just an easy thing. Oh, just toss some stones up on a, in a wall and you're done in 52 days. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, and I'm certain that the, the, the desolate situation, the difficult situation, the walls being torn down for a hundred years or more, this all fit into God's sovereign plan. Don't get me wrong here. And yet, I wonder what kept the walls from being built up until this point. I think Nehemiah, he kind of addressed it already, really. Um, partially, I think it was fear, right? He, he had to tell the people, don't be afraid of them. Trust in God. Partially, it was fear. I think partially, it was control of outside cities, of outside people. You can see that in the resistance from Tobiah and, uh, and, and Geshem and the others, Sanballat. It was, we don't want you to be independent. We don't want you to be fortified and, and the people of God because we want to have control over you. So there was manipulation. And as we see here, there were connections with ungodly people that were all kind of stirring around. Partially, I do think, though, it would seem like there was some kind, to some degree, of a lack of passion among God's people to see the work happen, right? And, and so, certainly, we can draw some conclusions and application in our own lives now. It's like, well, yeah, that, yeah, Lord, that's a, a, a part of my life I should probably address. Well, I'll do it tomorrow, right? I, I said this to my spouse, and I probably should apologize I'll, I'll do it when they're in a better mood, right? And, and it's easy to kick the can down the road and, and and not ever come to grips with the situation. And for the people of Jerusalem, we're talking 100 years. 
you don't have that much time. Just bluntly, to put it bluntly, you don't have that much time to let things go to, before you make it right. Don't wait. Now, so we've got fear, we've got outside control, we've got partially, probably just kind of a lack of passion. These things all playing together. Uh, I, I think sometimes, though, things don't happen because we don't start doing them. And that's, there's an old saying, I'll probably mess it up, but it's like the journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step. Whatever. It's not a biblical thing, but it's, it's reality. It's true. You'll never move closer to God if you don't start now. Today even. You won't. Because your own indwelling sin and the world around you and the enemy, they're all pushing you away from what God would want and who God is. And so you have to start now. You have to, you have to start it, but then you have to endure and persevere in it. And notice when, when Nehemiah says we've, the wall was built, he's not puffing out his chest and putting on a show and going, saying nanny, nanny, boo, boo to all the, the town's mayors around him, right? I finished the wall despite your opposition. He's not doing any of that. He's just, he's just like saying it, it's done. It's finished. He never claims that it's uh, his or Jerusalem's power or their efficiency in building, right? They had the they had the politicians and their daughters building this wall. Okay, it's not their building might and ability that got the work done. Look at verse 16. He spells it out very very clearly. He says when our enemies heard of it that the wall had been built, all the nations around us were afraid and they fell greatly in their own esteem. Here's why. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. The people will not, were not on their own in this work. Nehemiah was a great leader. Don't get me wrong. And yet it wasn't Nehemiah's great leadership that caused this to happen in 52 days. It was clear to even the, their enemies, even the people that didn't know God, that it was God who made this all happen. He was intricately involved the whole time. You can see this in your notes. This, Nehemiah has talked this way. The entire book. Look, two, chapter two, verse eight. He says, "This, this, he had uh, success before the king, because the good hand of God was upon him." Chapter two, verse twelve. He said that he did these things for Jerusalem because God put it in his heart to do it. Chapter two, verse twenty. He says, "Don't be afraid, because the God of heaven would make them prosper." Do you see the theme here? Chapter 4, verse 15. God confused and frustrated the plans of the enemy. Chapter 4, verse 20. Don't fear because God would fight for you. Chapter 6, verse 16. Here, God helped them build and finish the wall. You see, do you see the theme? This is Nehemiah saying, it's all God. It's His work. It's His power. It's His plan. The previous things, they may not have been clear to the people up until that point. But you get to the end of this building project and you look at what could be a record-setting pace of 52 days and even the outside non-Christians are looking at this and saying, this isn't right. Something miraculous happened here. This is incredible. Now, it, it, They weren't like praising the Lord because of it. They were thinking, uh-oh, it's done. And it had to be... The Lord, it, it, it had to have been accomplished with the help of their God. They couldn't come to any other conclusion but that, that God was involved. And time after time, 
Old Testament especially, but New Testament as well, we see the same thing played out, don't we? I feel like I point this out often, but it's a good remembrance. When, when the people of God were delivered from Egypt with ten incredible plagues, the people of Egypt had no other reason but to say, the God, the God of the Israelites made this happen, right? And they sent them out with gold and silver and treasure. We think of then the parting of the Red Sea. No human being could do that. The tumbling of the walls of Jericho by just trumpets and, and voices. That had to be the Lord. Gideon's battle against the enemy with, with a, a clay pot and a torch and a horn. These are not battle, you know, specific things. And yet all of these things, God comes through and there's no other way to read into this, but God made it happen. And it's the same thing for Nehemiah and the people. You can see this all the way through, even the New Testament, the feeding of the 5,000, only God could do that in Jesus Christ, the raising of Lazarus, etc., and so on and so on. Only God could do this. It wasn't the strength of the Jews at all. It was their God. God made it happen, and even their enemies recognized it. And look at the effect that it had in verse 16. It says that it caused them to be afraid. It caused them to lose their courage because they understood something that we need to understand still today. And it's this, God never abandons those who trust in him. The people were small. For a long time, they looked awfully weak, right? They were separated, taken into captivity. Didn't look like they were a very powerful force. And yet God had not abandoned them. God had not left them. And he doesn't leave his people who trust in him even today. The enemies also realized that I think that if, if God could help them build the walls in 52 days, what else maybe could this God do? Right? It had been a century or more and they hadn't seen a whole lot happen, but now they're seeing this pretty miraculous event unfold and now they're like, okay, hold the, hold the phone. If God could, their God could cause this to happen, what else could he do? How else might he also be with them? And I think it's the same application for us today. If God has saved you, he's going to keep you going forward and do incredible things through you when you're surrendered to his spirit. When you work as unto the Lord, people are going to look at this and say, there's no other explanation. God's made this happen. I look at the existence of this church for over 200 years and come to the same conclusion. There's no way. A place out here in, in, no offense, the middle of nowhere, uh, could, could, ha- this could be the case. And yet in God's sovereign plan and provision, there's been a, a body of Christians here worshiping on these grounds for over 200 years. No one can look at that and say anything else, but that's the spirit of God. It's not our strength. It's not our giving. We talked at this, the trivia night. The bonus question was, what's, what was the annual salary for the first pastor here? The first paid pastor. It was five bucks. Five dollars. And then the next year it jumped to twenty-three dollars because he was going to preach more often. And and families in the church wrote down their commitments on what they were going to give, and it ranged anywhere from twenty-five cents to ten dollars. And they paid for their salary. You look at that from the outside and you say, This is not that's not going to work. Two hundred years later, we would beg to differ. And this is how it went for the people. People looked at it and said, there's no other explanation. It's God who brings you guys 
and us together from all different walks of life, all different backgrounds, all different uh, experiences and upbringings. And it's God who makes us love one another when it's sometimes not easy. It's God who, and only God, who can convince sinners to do that, to love one another. It's only God who can lift the veil and convince someone that the gospel is actually true, and it's for them. So whatever we do as the church, we want people to look at it and say, wow, there's no other explanation except that God made it happen. Look at verses 15 and 16 again. These are verses of victory, right? Really, the wall was finished, yes. And they, this, these verses describe how those on the outside of the wall were affected. But now look at 17, 18, and 19. The work wasn't done yet. The physical work was done. But those three verses, 17, 18, and 19, describe really more tension within the walls. These verses describe how the, the, the finishing of the wall affected those on the inside. Tobiah is listed here. He's an enemy of the Jews, but here we find in these verses that some of the nobles in Jerusalem uh, and many others, Nehemiah says, were bound by oath to him. They were still corresponding with him by letters. And these weren't just innocent like, hey, how you doing letters. These were... Uh, trade secrets, right? Trading intelligence. They were telling uh, the outsiders what Nehemiah was saying and doing and, and Tobiah was uh, talking and conversing with them through these letters. And it was really trying to undermine a lot of what God was doing on the inside. Yeah, the walls were done. That's great. But there's still problems within. They were trading intelligence and, and if you really want to, get, want to get down to it, this was, this was treachery. Okay, by these folks. This is a bad deal. And, and so not only was this going on, but we'll see as we go that the issue of intermarriage, the Jews marrying outside of their own people as God instructed, intermarriage was going to rear its ugly head again. Okay? Um, many in Judah had pledged oaths to him. They made promises to this enemy of the Jews. Probably we're talking about trading agreements possibly facilitated by marriage connections. And so Tobiah is connected to significant people in Jerusalem by marriage. There's the problem. Now, just again, to be clear, Tobiah is a non-Jew, we believe, who was intimately and, and really connected within the Jewish community, but he didn't want to see the Jews prosper. If you remember way back in like chapter 1 and 2, when they heard that Nehemiah was coming to rebuild the walls, it really bugged them. It really bothered them. They didn't want it to happen. So he's a non-Jew who doesn't like the thought of the Jews prospering, who's connected because of deals by marriage. This is, can be a tricky situation here. Not only that, but he's got nobles, important high-up people in the community kind of wrapped around his finger if you will, wrapped up in all this deceit, whether they realized it or not, they were. And they were trying to convince Nehemiah of Tobiah's good deeds. Look at verse 19, you can see that. They were trying to talk good about Tobiah to Nehemiah. And so I think you can, kind of, you can probably imagine the scene with me. Nehemiah has shown so far that he's not really interested in having a conversation about 
you know, making a, a deal or sitting down and talking with them about how to, how to fix this and make things right between them. He wasn't trying to negotiate anything. In fact, you could look at Nehemiah's responses and see they're pretty short. They're pretty direct. And our culture is one that doesn't really like short and direct anymore. We're very sensitive and Nehemiah certainly not coming across as very diplomatic in his responses, is he? Uh, the last thing he said to, to these people was, it's all in your head. <laughs> he said, you're making it all up in your own mind. It's not true. And then he just let it go. He's not being very diplomatic. And if you look at it from a certain perspective, you might come to the conclusion, well, Nehemiah is not very nice, is he? He's not very caring. You could look at this and say, look, Tobiah's always been a good buddy to me. He's, he's just one of the good old boys connected in here. Uh, he's always been really nice to me. Just look, Nehemiah, look at all the good stuff Tobiah's done. Look at all this. He's a good guy. Why are you being so mean to him? And then maybe they begin to ask themselves this question. Well, who's really the bad guy here? They probably didn't see the threatening and discouraging letters that Tobiah was getting through to Nehemiah. Verse 19 also says that these were letters were intended for one purpose, to make him afraid, to scare him, to intimidate him, to manipulate him. Tobiah might have put on a good front in front of everybody else, but the, this, this shows us he was not repenting. He was not getting on board with God's plan for his people in Jerusalem. He was actually still opposing God's work. He was just simply changing his tactics again. And here's another example of what we talked about last week and what we already mentioned this morning. Perseverance, guys, is absolutely necessary. Keep pushing forward. Keep leaning into the finished work of Christ on your behalf because the enemy is still actively working to deceive the world and his, and God's people. His Jewish brothers and sisters it doesn't seem like they could see what Nehemiah saw. God gave Nehemiah eyes to see through Tobiah's deceit and to see the truth. And the truth was, he wasn't a friend. He wasn't a guy that they should be cutting deals with. And then that's, that's it. The chapter, verse 19, kind of ends there, right? He says, this was still going on. Here's the intent. That's it. He leaves it there. He, did, he, he didn't trust, or rather, he didn't insist that the nobles all read these letters. He didn't say, hey, guys, look at the intimidation tactics that he's using. We're, we're not told that he does, does that. He's not dragging Tobiah's name through the mud. He's just saying it's not true, and he's trusting in the Lord. He doesn't go out of his way to try to change their minds about Tobiah, at least in this part of the text. But he also doesn't align with their views about it either. There's a lot of instances in our culture today where we just can't line up with the views of those around us. And when that's the case, I don't know that we even need to explain ourselves fully. Now, sometimes there's a time for that. We should certainly be ready to defend why we have this hope. But I don't know that we need to do it every time. Nehemiah doesn't. He just says it's not true. God's going to take care of it. 
And then he continues walking the way that God calls him to. He just leaves it. He's content to just leave it in the hands of the Lord. I think we can know why. It's because we've talked about already. He, re, he says, remember the Lord. He's great and awesome. Remember the Lord who is the judge. That's how he has confidence to just leave it there. Because he knows that God is going to make things right. So he doesn't feel compelled to have to do those things himself. So the wall is finished. Everybody say hooray. 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 The wall is finished. Praise the Lord. This is great. Nehemiah moves from from one building project to another, though. Okay? You'll see what I'm getting at. Um, he goes from focusing on the walls of the city to focusing on the hearts of the people. From building up the walls to building up the hearts of the people. And if you want to get right down to it, that's probably a more difficult project, isn't it? As God's people, children of promise, God would use Israelites, the Jews, to be a light among the nations, right? People were supposed to look at the, na- at the people of God, the nation of Israel, and they were supposed to see God's power and hand. This is what we talked about earlier. Their enemies knew that this was the power of God. They attributed it to, to God. So in doing the things that only God could do, He showed his power and hand through Israel, but he also does that by them behaving in the ways that they're instructed to and then practicing the things that they're supposed to. They're supposed to do things totally different than the world around them. They were called to what the Bible calls holiness, weren't they? They were called to be holy. They were called to be set apart. That's what the church is still called to be. Think about what God called them to do. They were called to do things differently. They were called to do things differently in, in, in who they worshipped, right? The one true God, not all these other gods. In who they worshipped, in how they worshipped. They were supposed to, to trust God and obey God in, in who they married, in how they raised their children, in how they treated their, their fellow countrymen, their Jews, and how they treated the outsiders, foreigners, just to name a few of the things that they were supposed to do differently. So in order to be set apart from the world, they were going to have to know who they were as God's people. They had to know who they are as God's people. They were his. They belonged to God. That's why chapter 7 matters. And if you just glance down, you're going to see chapter 7 is like 73 verses of names. Now we read four verses that weren't names, but the rest of them are pretty much a list of people. And this is why that list is important. Because these families that are represented by these names were called to be different. To do something that only God could perform. Right? It's also the issue why the issue of intermarriage threatens everything that those who returned to Jerusalem were trying to accomplish. It says in the, the first four verses of chapter 7 that the Levites were appointed, the gatekeepers were appointed, the singers were appointed, the wall was finished. He he started kind of laying these things out, but he says that there there weren't very many people living there. Some of the homes hadn't been rebuilt yet. And the question is, well, who was going to live there? Were the people from the outside 
uh, cities going to live in, in Jerusalem? No. Um, were people who did not share their values and beliefs supposed to live and dwell in Jerusalem? No. Who was going to live there? You guys know. God's people. The ones who said that they fear the great and awesome God, the ones who said that they were going to do things God's way. And so, so Nehemiah, he instructs his brothers, guys that he trusted, uh, to close the gates, to set guards, to, to be in charge. And he, it, what the phrase is here, we talks about like, uh, don't open the gates until it's hot in the day. Close the gates while people are still on guard. Basically, he's tightening security. Okay, he's not opening the gates at sunrise. He's waiting a little bit longer. He's shutting the gates a little bit before sundown. He's tightening security. He sets the singers and the Levite priests in their places. And the question is why? Why would he do this? Why would he tighten security? Why would he put all these people up? I think there's a clear reason. And kids, this is what you're listening for this morning. Nehemiah did all of these things because they were preparing to do something that hadn't happened in 100 years, officially. They were getting ready to have a formal worship service. They were getting ready to worship the Lord. They didn't rebuild the walls to just sit in their lawn chairs and sip lemonade and look at pretty walls. It's not why. Now, they, they were multi-purposeful. They did other things. But their real purpose... The real intent, the walls were rebuilt so that they could worship God properly and freely. That's it. Centered around worship. The walls were rebuilt for that purpose. They were about to have a dedication ceremony where God was worshipped and where the word would be read and where families committed to serve him and him only. Boy, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? In God's provision, we do that with our families and we celebrated that here today. We love our children and we believe that they ultimately belong to God. And so we dedicate to raise them up according to his will, his word, and his ways. Not the world's ways. We don't commit to do what's easy. We commit and we believe that his words and his ways give life. Not the ways and will of the world. So we give our kids to him and we trust him with their lives. But that doesn't mean we let our our guard down, does it, moms and dads? We don't stand up here and say, yes, I give my kids to the Lord. I want to raise them up and then go home and let them watch whatever they want on TV. Or let them hang out with whoever they want to in the community. Or do whatever they want, right? We don't let our guard down. Yes, we give them to the Lord, but we set a guard, right? This is what Nehemiah is doing here. That's why he set a guard around Jerusalem. That's why we set a guard around our kids. Because we recognize that they are precious. And because they belong to the Lord. And Nehemiah sees the people of God as precious. And belonging to the Lord. And so he sets a guard and they're getting ready to worship. And this is a, an incredible, it's an incredibly long worship service, as we'll see. I won't hold you to that same standard. Where you stand for hours in the sun, listening to the word of God being read. It wouldn't be wrong for us to do that. 
But Nehemiah recognizes that they're precious and they belong to the Lord. And so they're getting ready to do this. And I just want to ask this question in, in reflection and application, especially to you moms and dads who are represented up here today. Do, do people notice the hand of God on our families? We want, we want people to notice the hand of God on his people and for them to see only, only God could make a bunch of sinners love one another well. Only God could do that. But is it, are people seeing our families the same way? Is there stuff going on in our homes that only God could accomplish? That doesn't mean we, we let our guard down and we just, you know, say, well, I'm just, you know, going with the spirit. Yes, we should. But there's some structure that we, especially dads, that we need to set in place. And we need to keep going with. And we'll not do that well sometimes. And if you're in a season where you're not doing that well, start today. Start again. Start today. Start tomorrow. Implement these changes. And if you're like, Rod, I have no idea what to do. I want to do this, but I don't know. Text me, call me. I've got resources. I will sit down and pray together. We want to see men, you leading your families. You leading the raising of your kids to follow Jesus. And so we want to help you in that process. Does God, or do people see the hand of God on our families? Do they see that how we're raising our kids looks different from how people that don't go to church raise their kids? Or do they see us chasing after the same things? Pouring our time and energy and resources into the same things that they are. Now don't misunderstand me. Uh, sports, extracurriculars, hobbies, these things are not bad in and of themselves. Adam and Eve were gardeners, don't forget. And yet, if they become our focus, well, now we've, we've misaligned the direction of our families. And we need to repent. And we need to reprioritize what's really important. Moms and dads, are we setting a guard around our families? Church member, are you helping these parents set a guard around their families? Are we setting a guard around our church? Or are we open to attack and like it was for Nehemiah, open to deceit amongst the people close to him due to a lack of preparation? Now, Nehemiah wasn't lacking in preparation, but sometimes we do. Is your life personally properly aligned with the word of God, with the ways of God, with the will of God, or are you being intimidated by the enemy? Are you forgetting that you were called to holiness as one of God's children? Or are you easily led astray by the things of this world? Nahum seven reminds us, the Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows personally, intimately, he knows those who take refuge in him. Question is, are you taking refuge in him today? You do that by placing your hope in him, whether it's again as a believer or whether it's for the first time. You're placing your hope in Jesus. You're placing your hope, your trust, your very life in Jesus Christ, believing that his sacrifice has removed your sins and reconciled you back to God. Does your life look different from the world around you? Are you 
taking refuge in him today. You can, and I pray that you would. Let's pray together. Lord, you, you call us. You use the gospel. You use your messengers, Christians who are ministers of reconciliation on your behalf. You call us to preach the good news, to make it known And we do that in our families and how we raise our kids and we do that in the church and how we love one another and how we make you known in the presentation of the gospel. Whether that's in a brief interaction in the grocery store or whether that's where we we meet with a friend who's hurting and we share with them the life-giving hope of the message of Jesus. Lord, you've called us to go And I pray that we are as your people to have confidence and to live our lives in such a way that when people look in, they don't see how good we are. They don't see the incredible sacrifices that we make, but instead they see only something that God could do. I pray as a church, we're exemplifying that as well. This doesn't mean that we sit back and observe, Lord. It still means that we get involved and we interact and we plan and we work, but Lord, we trust you with the results. Help us not to get discouraged when people ridicule, when we face persecution. Because in fact, Lord, you've told us that those things are going to happen to those who are following you. And even today we feel that at times. And so I pray that you would help us to persevere, cause us to persevere. Help people to look at us and say, wow, God had something to do with that. God was the driving force behind that person enduring through that difficult time or that church accomplishing something. We're grateful that you've given us Jesus because without him, we wouldn't have a hope because he is the author and the finisher of our faith. And so I pray, Lord, that if our hearts have been far from you, that today you are calling us and we would give them back to you. We would give them to you and that you would reconcile us back to to yourself through the sacrifice of Christ. This is not a, a magical process, Lord. It is simply staking everything on Jesus because he is enough. And so I pray as we sing this last song of reflection and we think about everything that we've been together with today, I pray that you would have your way in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.